Good, welcome. This is the first in a series of, well, clinics that we as a department are running. In order to help you towards success, whatever that looks like for you at GCSE. Now, the approach I'm taking today is not, I repeat, not a breakdown of how to do well in the exam, okay? A, that would be very, very tedious, and B, each of your teachers and the different classes you're part of will be giving sort of slightly different approaches that resolve the same questions. So the last thing I want to be doing is to appear to contradict anything your teachers have already said in terms of how we go about completing the exam paper, okay? That's not what this is about. What this is about is promoting, if you like, an understanding of the play, okay? Fundamentally, in terms of, you know, you as learners, the most important thing of all when you enter that exam room is how well do you understand the play, okay? So my intention today is to do three things uh, with you. Firstly, establish, I hope, a reading of the play. What do I mean by that? Well, just what I've said. Hopefully, by the time you leave this room, you will have a much clearer understanding of the play as a whole. By nature and by requirements, a lot of your teachers' work with you will be based on moments from the play. It's very difficult, unless you are actually fortunate enough to go to the theatre or to see a production on screen, to get a sense of the play as a whole thing. And that is what is particularly important in part B of the exam. Part B, it says, is how well do you understand this play? By definition of your understanding of one part of it. Okay? So there is, obviously, I am mindful of the fact that you will have a GCSE in the summer, but what this is not, this is not a workshop, a clinic, which fills in the gaps that you have in your understanding of the exam. This is about the play, this is about a piece of drama, and this is primarily about the ideas within that piece of drama and how we can come to understand them. So the first thing we'll be talking about is this idea of a bigger picture. What is the bigger picture? What is the play about? How do I construct a view, and by I I mean you of course, how do you construct an understanding of what Macbeth is about? And that question is really important. How often when a teacher asks you, what's this poem about? Yeah, what's this play about? What's this novel about? How often do you find yourself reaching for phrases like, <coughs> that basically address what happens in the play? Or in the text. Okay? That's not an understanding, that's just a knowledge of the narrative. Okay, and that's not going to get you very far at all. So, what we need to do is when we say what is the play about, we need to understand the ideas, the ideas that lie behind it. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about character and theme. Okay? So, you know that your question again with a nod to the GCS, you know that your exam is going to address how well you understand the characters and the themes, and they are interrelated. They don't exist separately from each other. Your understanding of the characters will help you come to a view on the ideas. And in the same way, an understanding of the ideas will help you to understand the characters. They're interrelated. And the second thing I'm going to do is help you to see how those two things are closely related and how your understanding of the play is both reliant on an understanding of character and themes but also your understanding of the play as a whole will deepen 
your understanding of the characters and themes that comprise the text. And the third thing, again with a nod to your exams, is just showing you how we can take this idea then of a bigger picture, because it's all very well, you're sitting there thinking, oh, it's all very well, you're telling me what the play is about, sir, but you know, how am I, what am I supposed to do with that? So the third thing we'll be doing is showing you how you can make really strong connections between this big picture, this understanding of the play, and the details, the words themselves, the lines, the poetry. Because as you guys well know, the thing that separates Shakespeare from pretty much any other writer is not that he was necessarily just a great playwright, or that he was not necessarily just a great poet. He did both at the same time. And part of the complexity of these written texts comes from the fact that they aren't just plays, they're plays written in verse. And you have to have an understanding as well of how the verse and how the poetry works in order to then understand the play itself. So, let's move on. So we're going to start this question of the bigger picture. I am not going to talk at you now for the next half an hour, don't worry. Okay? I'm going to break this up. There will be plenty of opportunity for you to stop, to chat to the person next to you, exchange, think about questions. Okay? If at that point you then want to share something or ask a question, I want the session to be interactive in that sense. Okay? But it's not a lesson at the same time where there are specific tasks for you to do. What you take away from this room is up to you. I will publish the slides and I am recording the presentation, so you will have access to it for later on for revision purposes, alright? But this isn't a lecture, but at the same time it's a lesson, it's sort of somewhere in between. Okay, so you will be able to take away whatever you need to take away from this, but I have allowed space for you to, to think about that for yourselves. So what is the bigger picture? Well, you will know that an understanding of any text is also reliant on our understanding of the context in which that text was created. So, some simple information for you here. At the time of writing, King James of Scotland originally was on the throne. Okay? Shakespeare was not just someone who wrote for the sake of writing. He was a savvy fella. He also had commercial interests. And he knew that if he wanted to be continued to, be, to have his plays performed and to be supported by the people who supported him, he would have to write stuff that appealed to them. Okay? So one of the things we need to know is that in the latter years when King James was on the throne, lots of Macbeth's plays kind of reflected the insecurities of the time. And I think we can already see how that's relevant to Macbeth. The story is about a man who kills a king and then has to reap the consequences. Can anybody think of an immediate historical event that might illustrate a tension or an anxiety or an insecurity of that nature great so immediately we have a connection with the spirit of the time it's like somebody today writing a play about what happens after Brexit okay I'll give you a clue not a lot for you lot all for me Right? So it's, that's the kind of idea. The plays themselves were informed by life at that time. And that's what we mean by an understanding of how context shapes the story. The second thing is, the Elizabethan age, so, and of course the early Jacobean age, an age of discovery. Britain was the most powerful country in the world. But of course, when you're in a position of power, you have insecurities. What is your number one concern when you're in power? Staying in power. Okay? And all of those insecurities and worries are also dealt with in the course of the play. 
Another little bit of information. You all know, of course, that the witches are an integral part. I want to come back to these witches in a minute. But what I'm going to encourage you to do is to not see them just as witches, whatever that may be. In the same way as I'm going to encourage you not to look at characters as like mini made up people. Like they're more than that. And if you think of witches as like evil old women who like make potions, then you're limiting yourself and your ideas. If you think about characters as just many people, you're limiting yourself. They are representative of ideas, representative groups within society, representative indeed, as you'll see later on, <coughs> of each and every one of us. Don't worry about writing all this down, I'll send it all out and you'll have access to it, okay? So, that question, what is Macbeth about? Alright? I'm pretty sure you will appreciate the fact that Macbeth is about ambition. Yeah? That word familiar? What else is it about? I've 30 seconds of the person next to you if you want to. What is the play about? What are the ideas? Right. Let's just have some ideas. Only to be one word at times. What are the other things? What else is Macbeth about? It's about ambition. What else is it about? <coughs> Control. Great. What else? Manipulation, yeah. Supernatural. The supernatural, great. Hold up. Kingship, yeah. Responsibility, power, yeah, great. What's the relationships? Relationships, excellent. Yeah. Guilt. Yeah, brilliant. All of that sound familiar? That's the easy bit, right? All you'll do is think of a word. If I was to ask you, what does the play show us or tell us, or what do you understand about? that idea, having read the play, that's a lot more difficult as a question, isn't it? Play's about guilt. All right, and? And what? So, when we try to articulate what the play is about, we have to go beyond and say, well, it's about ambition. All right, so what? What does the play tell us about ambition? What happens because of ambition? <coughs> That's what I mean by a bigger picture. Okay. So on that, why don't you just take a minute with the person next to you to pick any of these ideas and try to work out what the play says or shows us about any one of those ideas. Ambition, love, relationships, morality, cruelty, death, life, spirituality, power. What does the play tell us about any of those ideas? Right. Okay. Uh, and again, I have no actual uh, expectation at this point. I certainly won't want to put pressure on anybody at all. But does anybody feel as though they're in a position to say something about any of these ideas in relation to the play and what it, what it says to you? Anybody feel prepared to do that? Okay. Let's think about ambition. Okay? And as I talk about ambition now, I'm just going to illustrate to you how an understanding of the context helps us to arrive at an understanding of the play and its ideas. Alright? So I'm sure you'll be aware that religious thinkers in the Middle Ages have come up with the idea of this great chain of being. Put your hands up if you've heard the phrase great chain of being, ideally in a lesson about Mabeth. Okay, most of you. Good. This was a belief held by many that God had designed, well, firstly, the universe, but within that, a sort of an orderly hierarchy 
for both nature and humankind, okay? With God himself at the top and everybody else in their place <coughs> beneath him. That makes sense? Everything had its place. The idea being that it was a great sin for anybody to try and alter their position. Which is, of course, what Macbeth does. Okay? So let's think about ambition, therefore. How does that contextual fact, if you like, or that contextual idea, help us to arrive at an understanding of the idea of ambition within the play? Well, what about this? Macbeth's ambition, and he's not the only character who is ambitious within the play, as we all know, Okay? But this is one perspective on ambition. But Beth's ambition, therefore, becomes a force that compels him. In other words, it leaves him with no option. It is the most powerful force in action on him. <coughs> it compels him to overleap his position and assume a place within the hierarchy of the world that he was born into. His ambition drives him to think, not only do I want to be king, in other words, that I am going to do whatever it takes to be king. And this great sin, as a Jacobean audience would have seen it, is eventually punished. In the only way that a God-fearing audience, like a Jacobean audience at the time, 1606, his crime is punished in the only acceptable way, death. Right? So there is one way of understanding the role of ambition within the play. It is something that forces us to do something or behave in such a way that causes disruption, that causes, for want of a better word, chaos or disorder. Do we feel the same about ambition these days? Yeah, no. Hands up if you think that this is a contemporary attitude towards ambition as well. Hands up if you think that actually ambition today is a really, really good thing and we should all be ambitious because, you know, money. Let's face it, what does the master talk about? What was his number one thing, September Snow, when he took over? His number one bullet point for staff, he wants everything in this school to be about ambition and aspiration. And the way we talk of the language we use is, we are ambitious for you and your futures. We expect things of you now because we have expectations for your future. That's the language we do. That's, that, isn't that a totally different attitude? What's social mobility? Anyone? What's social mobility? Rich? The ability to move up and down. There you go. Natural classes and society. Exactly right. The ability or the opportunity to make a better life for you, for yourself, your family, whatever. Anyone got a problem with that? No, of course not. But to do that, surely you've got to have some ambition in the first place, no? So you can see already how contextually, and by that I mean attitudes of the time versus attitudes of our day today, lead us to different perspectives and understandings of the play. Is Shakespeare saying that ambition is inherently and of itself a bad thing? No, it isn't. It's a particular kind of ambition. A kind of ambition that leads someone to do the kinds of things Macbeth 
did. And this leads us into the second part of the presentation now. Okay? So, character and theme. We'll spend a little time on how are those ideas interrelated. And we're going to carry on with the idea of ambition. Okay? I hope you've all understood or heard of the word hamartia. H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, Greek word meaning fatal flaw. Okay? It's part of the critical language that we use to describe and talk about the play. What's Macbeth's flaw, his weakness, his ambition? He talks about himself in that one scene seven, doesn't he? I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition which are leaps itself and falls on the other. Okay, and in case you're not familiar with that, all he's saying is, I've got no way of stopping myself. The only thing that exists in me now is an ambition, is the will, the desire to become king. And I know that that desire is so strong that it's going to, this idea, image of overleaping itself and falling on the side, it uses the image of a horse. Success would be leaping onto the horse, as metaphor for being at the top of the world being king. But what's going to happen is he's going to leap over the horse and land the other side. He's going to overreach himself. He knows before he even starts. What does he know before he even starts? It's going to end badly. He knows before he even kills the king. When does he kill the king? Act 2, scene 1, correct. This is Act 1, scene 7. He knows before he even starts. His ambition is so strong, it's going to lead him to do something that will inevitably result in his own destruction. And what's the mental thing? What's the crazy thing about this? He does it anyway. What does it lead him to do? Leads him to murder the king, who also happens to be his own cousin, by the way. Leads him to kill, or at least have assassinated, his, his best mate. Good start. And he hasn't even got to the part yet where he commands that Macduff's family, wife and children, are also killed. It drives him to remove every obstacle in his way. His ambition overcomes his sense of right and wrong, his morality. Morality, another idea that the play is about. Yeah, it was on the list, wasn't it? There's a connection between the two. How do you understand these ideas in relation to each other? Ambition compels him to hold on to power by whatever means necessary. Why does he kill Banquo? Because he knows Banquo suspects him of the king's murder. Because Banquo was present when the witches predicted the future. It leaves him open to manipulation and deception. At whose hands primarily? His own wives. It leads him to deny reason and morality. He receives a very clear warning, doesn't it, that you have nothing to fear until the woods themselves, Great Burnham Wood, move to Dunsinane. And when... Duncan's sons come up with their scheme for all the soldiers to hide behind branches and leaves. Sneak up on the castle. Right, that's what he says. That's his attitude. He denies reason. He denies what he can see with his own two eyes because he is driven and blinded by his ambition. So what does Shakespeare 
showing us about ambition then through Macbeth's actions. Have a moment with the person sat next to you. Again, uh, I'm not expecting anyone, I'm not putting pressure on anyone at all. If somebody wanted to offer a suggestion, I know it's, uh, you know, God forbid we say something that makes other people laugh at us. Okay. I'll give you a possibility. Now, here's the thing, right? And this is what I talk, this is what I mean when I talk about constructing a reading. Okay? A reading is a very personal thing. A reading is a very personal thing. Okay? We all respond to the same text, the same things, the same people in slightly different ways. Okay? We may all sort of be roughly along the same lines. Yeah? But we'll all look at things in a slightly different way. And one of the great things about drama, drama is it's what we call its universality. In other words, the fact that it speaks to each and every one of us in some way. And in my personal view, one of the great things about Shakespeare is that it teaches us something about human nature. About what it is to be a person, a man, a woman, or whatever you define yourself as. It teaches us something about the condition of being mortal. About being human. Vulnerable to whatever force it is that affects you. Ambition. Your emotions. <coughs> okay? So, here's a possibility for you. To the bottom of the screen. Maybe Shakespeare is showing us, through the story of Macbeth, maybe Macbeth represents or becomes every one of us or any one of us who is overcome at any point by desire or just the will to do something maybe that we are so consumed and obsessed and fixated on something because Macbeth's ambition isn't you know, to get home quarter of an hour early so we can watch Neighbours his ambition is to overthrow the king, to become king, and to stay on the throne. That's pretty, that's pretty big news. Right? But maybe this is about the danger that comes with ambition. Any time that we as human beings are overcome by desire, romantic, lustful, professional, financial, personal, whatever it may be, what happens if we allow ourselves to be overtaken, obsessed with this one thing? What happens then? Well, according to the story, if you are so completely fixated and obsessed with that one thing, particularly something you shouldn't have or probably shouldn't aspire to, what are the inevitable consequences? Chaos. Destruction. Maybe it wouldn't necessarily lead you to kill your own family or your best mate, but it might lead you to turn your back on a friendship or to slander or to ruin somebody's reputation or to do something that cannot be undone. Maybe. Maybe that's the point of it all. Let's move on. If we have that, let's take that idea then, that understanding of Beth. Maybe he speaks to the human condition in a way that says, beware of anything that completely 
obsesses and fixates and, and overtakes you. Let's take that idea. How does that then affect our understanding of other characters? All right. Let's have a think. Let's think about the witches. Okay. And the reason I picked on the witches is because they're quite hard to get a handle on. They're not old women who sit there making magic spells. Okay. Let's let's move past that idea. What do they do? They foretell the future. They prophesy. So clearly they're not human. They concoct potions and cast spells to cause chaos. They represent evil and the devil and that particular power. Maybe Shakespeare's saying to us, whatever you think, evil's a thing. The devil's a thing. He exists. Don't underestimate it. Bible even says the biggest trick that Satan ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. So maybe that's a thing. Maybe the witches represent forces that are beyond our control. Such as what we've just been talking about. Ambition. Desire. Maybe in the whole scheme of the play, the witches are there as an embodiment of the things that we can't control. Our emotions. Maybe. Maybe they represent ultimately the death and oblivion that waits us all. It doesn't matter what you achieve in your lifetime. And all the hubris and arrogance of the human condition that says that we can achieve something that will outlast us all. Go and read some Philip Dark and get a different point of view on that. Death awaits us all. Oblivion awaits us all. Very few people get talked after after they're gone. Ironically, Shakespeare did, but he was quite aware of the fact that death was on his doorstep. So, if we think about the witches in these terms, what is Shakespeare saying to us about the forces that drive and motivate us? Have a moment with the person sat next to you, have a little think about that. Good, good, good. Again, without any expectation or any pressure on anybody, anybody want to chuck anything out there just for our consideration? No, okay. So what is Shakespeare saying to us about the forces that drive and motivate us? Well, it's got a name, it's got a name, it's ambition, okay. If we see, if we see the witches as a representation of the forces that drive and motivate what have we just said about ambition, the dangers of ambition? We said that when it consumes, when it obsesses, when we're completely fixated on it, it leads to chaos and destruction. When we're overtaken by desire for something, it can only lead to bad things. Maybe that's what Shakespeare said. That force then becomes too much for us to control. Maybe that's what the witches are there for. To remind us that there are forces at work in this universe and in this world that are beyond our control. And whether you believe in God or not, or whether you believe in a spiritual existence or not, is beside the point. What about your own motivations? What about your own desires? What about your own emotions? You in control of those? Oh, you can't help who you fall in love with? No, you can't. You can certainly decide what to do about it, though. Maybe saying that. Maybe the witch has become that part of each of us 
which compels us to do the things that we do. Maybe that's what the witches are. Oh, the witches control, yeah. They're, they're supernatural, so they cast spells, they control my back. Do they? Maybe. Maybe it's much more interesting to think about them as representing any force, whether it be an emotion or a desire, that compels individuals to do the things that they do. I'm not saying it's always bad, but when it's uncontrolled, what was Macbeth's biggest mistake? Allowing himself to believe that what he was going to do, he could get away with. Well, he knew he couldn't get away with it. Did Macbeth make a mistake? Not if you believe that the forces that compelled him to do these things were so powerful, they couldn't do anything about it. Maybe that's what the witches represent. Maybe that's why the witches are supernatural. Because we have to, one of the problems of being a human being is that there is stuff that exists in the world, the universe around us, that we cannot control. Maybe that's the point. So, character, theme, interrelated. And you may wish to reflect now on how that affects other themes in the play. I'm going to move on just for the sake of time. So here's the interesting bit, I suppose, the bit that I'm sure many of you will be really keen to think about. It's all very well, sir, I hear you say. It's all very well having these ideas about you know, the bigger picture and how character and themes interrelate and all that sort of stuff, but I've got an exam to sit, man. It's all very well having these you know, airy-fairy ideas, this interpretation... How do we talk about the details? The key is, I often say, or my, in my view, one of the most important things I often say to my, my groups is that when you have a robust understanding of a play, like, for example, the ideas we've just been talking about, when you've got a really clear sense, right, yeah, that's what I, that's what I think, you need to be able to show how that big idea, that bigger picture, has been constructed. Why do you think that? What supports that view? And as ever, the relationship between the big picture and those tiny little details we call words is what it's all about. And the preserve of the top performing students at GCSE is that area where the big interesting ideas we've just been talking about are connected to the words, those moments in the play that you've remembered because you've all revised your quotation banks like good little boys and girls. Okay, so let's have a little look at that. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. All our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then it's heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, as literary sound bites go, that's pretty pessimistic. 
Just put your hand up if you've either come across that in class or you have a rough idea of what's going on at this point. Just put your hand up if you are you have a rough idea of what's going on here. Okay, cool. So it's probably worth then me spending 30 seconds or a minute or so just talking through it. Happy? Does that make sense? Alright. If you are familiar with this, at what point of the play does this come? <coughs> Roughly yeah. just towards the end, okay? Anybody know the circumstances? <coughs> Yeah, Elizabeth's gone. Macbeth is sort of beginning to face <laughs> up to his final moments in a way, I suppose you could argue. And simply what he says is this. He says, time goes on. It just creeps by day, by day, by day. Tomorrow will arrive. And then the day after. And then the day after. Until time itself runs out. And all we achieve as human beings, all our yesterdays, all they do is point the way for the fools that follow after us. All it does is point the way to death. That's what we're doing. We're all going to die. Some just get there first. And all the human history, all the great sum of human history, human achievement, all that is is a signpost saying this way to the end. Out, out, brief candle. Life is just a brief, a short moment of light. Like the flickering flame on the end of the taper, it can be extinguished in a moment. That's what it is. Time continues, the flame dies. Life is but a walking shadow. Life doesn't mean anything. It won't last. It's no more substantial than the shadow that's cast behind me as that light shines on my front here. It's a poor player. It's a really, really bad actor. Strutting and poncing his way around the stage just for a short time and then gone. No one remembers. Didn't do anything important. Life is a story told by an idiot. And all it consists of is sound and anger. And it doesn't mean a thing. Now, I suspect at this point on Friday afternoon you've probably heard <coughs> cheerier messages. Okay, I can make no apology, I'm afraid. These words are not mine. Okay? But let's reflect on the three things that we've said already and how they are connected to what we see in that speech. Okay? I'm sorry if you can't see the screen very clearly at the back. Again, just take a moment now. Can you see any connections between this here, what I've just explained to you, and any of these three ideas? Firstly, this great sin, the sin of ambition, the sin of overleaping yourself in the great chain of being, is eventually punished in exactly the way a God-fearing audience would expect it to be. Do we see that? presented in this speech anyway second idea Macbeth becomes any one of us who is overcome by desire or the will to do something that in here anywhere third thing the witches become that part of each of us which compels us to do the things that we do that idea in here anywhere spend a moment with the person sat next to you and see if you can make any connections off you go. good stuff thank you guys uh, well done well done just a couple more minutes to go now but um, 
maybe some of you have been able to see the connections to the ideas and the right and, and the text on the left. I don't know. I hope so. Okay, I'm just going to take one of them. I'm going to take one of them. Um, let's take that middle one. Macbeth, after all, he's speaking, right? Macbeth, essentially, it, as a character, he represents any one of us. Any one of us sat here in this room. Any one of us that calls ourselves human beings. Macbeth represents any one of us when we are overcome by desire or the will to do so, consumed by ambition. Alright? What does this speech tell us about that idea? I'll tell you what it tells us. It points out the foolishness, the futility, and the utter needlessness of Macbeth's ambition. Why? Because what ultimately awaits Macbeth? What ultimately awaits any of us? Some sooner than others. Yeah. Oh, I'm joking. Alright? Out, out, brief candle. Maybe the candle there is metaphor for his ambition. My ambition was there for a day or two, a time or two, a week or two, and now it's gone because I've made a complete mess of everything. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets. Maybe the strutting. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the... Maybe the Oxbridge. Maybe the debating. What is all that? I don't put a name to it. Give it a name. Maybe that which drives us it's strut. It's fret. Because how long does it last? Hour, week, day, turn, month? What happens afterwards? Maybe that's what he's saying. So my point here is that once we have an understanding of the play, it helps us to understand the details in a different way. But also, once we have a look at the details, it can help us form a new idea or a new understanding. And maybe actually, and I'm coming down to the final idea, and that is sort of how we can see this play as tragedy, right? Maybe the tragedy of the play is not that we have a hero who has fallen from grace, because if I'm honest with you, I'm not sure there's a huge amount that is massively heroic about Macbeth. He's presented at the beginning of the play as maybe, I don't know, the epitome of masculinity. He is number one man in the world, as defined by his physical strength and his courage in battle. What did he do? Well done. What's he achieved? Nothing, he's killed loads of people. He doesn't just kill people, by the way. What does he do to them? From the knave to the chaps. He guts them. Like pigs. Like a butcher. Is that the kind of man we aspire to be? Don't know, up to you. Maybe the tragedy, maybe the tragedy of the play is that actually Macbeth has finally understood what the what life is really about and where he's gone wrong and the tragedy is that he won't get to live life afterwards in this newfound wisdom and understanding maybe that's the tragedy not the tragedy of a fallen hero who's just gone to seed 
Maybe the tragedy is that actually he understood what life finally was really, really all about just in time to die. Maybe that's the tragedy. I don't know. Because when I look at the detail here, the strutting, he describes himself as strutting and fretting upon a stage. What's a stage? It's a story. It's make-believe. It's not real. What is power over another human being? Is that a thing? Only if you believe it to be a thing. My grandson's five years old. Okay, he couldn't care less what I ask him to do. He's this big. He couldn't care less. Have I got power over him? Yes, of course. I could pick him up, toss him out the window. <laughs> Would that make him care what I had to say? No. Maybe power's an illusion. Maybe power is only there if you think it's there. I don't know. Maybe that's what Macbeth realised, and the tragedy of it all, is he'd only come to understand the stupidity, the foolishness, the futility of it all, too late. So what is tragedy? Well, I'm sure that your teachers have told you about Aristotle and his view on tragedy, and I'll give a summary of that from his poetics on the left. But I'm going to leave you with this final thought from Arthur Miller, mid-20th century playwright American. Went out of Marilyn Monroe for a bit. Wow. Okay? And he says this. I think the tragic feeling is evoked in us when we are in the presence of a character, and that's what tragedy is, where we are in the presence of a character who is ready to lay down his life, obsessed, fixated, yeah? If need be, to secure one thing, his sense of personal dignity. Not dignity, but his personal dignity. In other words, if he thinks that his personal dignity has been affronted or offended or, or it is incomplete in some way, he is willing to lay down his life to claim what he feels to be his own. From Orestes to Hamlet, Medea to Macbeth, the underlying struggle is that of the individual attempting to gain his rightful position in his society. <sighs> Spicy stuff at this point in history. Because that's just not what life's about. Me. What can I get out of this? The individual, self, self-fulfillment, self-actualization. How am I doing? What are my targets? Are my teachers giving me everything they need? Maybe tragedy is when we get so caught up in ourselves and our own ambitions that we fail to understand the world around us. Maybe that's the tragedy. The tragedy that Macbeth was able to resolve for himself a little bit too late. Thank you, guys. <laughs>